You are listening to the Amen Corner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. For more information about the Amen Corner, please follow them on Twitter, Facebook, and all your other favorite social media. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 31 of the Amen Corner. He's Stephen Cook. And he's Brad Rothschild, episode 31. And I got the number right. Awesome. You know, awesome. there's a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> there is a lot of pressure. We on. have a very special episode today, but before we get into anything, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, that something monumental happened yesterday. I mean, Steven. big, big. <laughs> I mean, As we're speaking, <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump has been charged with seven crimes. He's going to have to use- he has to surrender to authorities on Tuesday in Miami. Nice. This thing is huge. It's a big deal. I think so. It's a big deal. I just want to know when all the MAGA crazies start going crazy with their firearms. They've already gone crazy. With no, firearms. I know, but like setting up then, their war on oh. the rest of us. Yeah, that's just a matter of time, really. <laughs> Maybe and he I, actually does go to jail. I, look, I, I feel like we're not, you know... We're, neither one of us are grand uh, predictors here, but we kind of you'd have to. We're be always blind. ahead of the curve. Yes, in but three you would have weeks. to blind. You would have to be blind not to have seen this coming. Exactly. Like in 2016, even. Exactly. You always knew that it would end up here because this is possibly the most corrupt human being on the planet. I, I mean, it's it's he's he's up there with those kind of. <laughs> crazy international kleptocrats. I mean, he's, he's like arch criminal. Abedin Ben Ali level of corrupt craziness. Just I like mean, he can't speak without lying. He can't act without criming. Like he's a criminal, <laughs> an arch criminal. Uh, also, um, what was that old TV show with the song? Don't do the crime. If you can't do the time, don't do it. What was that? I don't know. Columbo. Oh, could be. Or no, it was the other one. Anyway, whatever. Keep I didn't going. really watch that. Uh, okay. Well, this, this was shows like my dad watched. And I sat there when I was like six or seven. Anyway, didn't understand it. And then the other big thing this week was the fact that um, we couldn't breathe uh, for a couple of days in New York City, which was surreal. And it felt apocalyptic out there. Both my mom and my mother-in-law asked if there were masks for Tulip. Oh Which I God. thought was so cute. Just don't let the dog outside. Come on. We, she just has to go out sometimes. Well, yeah. So yeah. She's, been, she's only been out for a short period of time, and she's, like, scratching at the door at this point. It was bizarre in New York City. In the it, wasn't, it wasn't as bad in D.C. I mean, we had very, very hazardous smoke. No, it was but New York. But it turned orange. New York was crazy. Like, yeah. you could see the air. Like, it was yellow outside. It was yeah. crazy yeah. and gross. And only the beginning, apparently. So there, we have a lot to look forward to this summer. I didn't know there were wildfires in, you know, Quebec province. I, because there used to never be. This is <laughs> like, a new phenomenon. Lauren and I were there five years ago, and it's like lush and green and beautiful and whatever. I didn't realize it was becoming a desert environment well, where wildfires happen. Once anyway. again, I can only take solace in the fact that climate change is a hoax. And it is a hoax. It's a Chinese this, hoax. And none of this is really it's not happening. happening. It's nonsense. Yeah, it's all good. 
because it's if, all it's because all for this Hunter were, Biden to make money. If this were really happening, then we'd be up shit creek. <laughs> anyway, so okay. we have a very special episode with a very mm. special guest. I, and, lo- I uh, like this already. Let me let me introduce Professor Catherine Harrell from Syracuse University, a good friend of mine, the author of a wonderful book called Delta Democracy, uh, and she's coming to us live from. Serbia, of all places. Um, now, it, for those careful listeners of the Amen Corner, you will notice that from time to time, I will say, my friends in academia tell me this, that, and the other thing. I have a small circle of friends who are traditional academics, unlike myself, a non-traditional, in many ways, academic, um, who I talk to about, I like to keep you know up to date on what's going on on campus and so on and so forth. And Catherine is one of those uh, is one of those interlocutors. So, um, given the fact that there has been a lot in the news about DEI and freedom of speech on campus, and Brad, we had that conversation about admissions yeah, a month hold, or so ago. Hold on, hold on a second. Yeah, I just want to interrupt you. You said, given the fact that it's been in the news a lot, I feel like this is a subject that you, in particular, of the two of us. You're really more attuned to it, not only because you're a non-traditional academic or an academic of any kind, but for some reason you've kind of latched onto this well, as as one of your things. I'll tell you why, because there seems to be a lot um, among the columnists that I read about DI. Either again, like George Will, who I read, who've been reading for years, it seems like every other column he's writing about. DEI Inc. or yeah. someone's writing in defense of DEI. I also am a subscriber of the Chronicle to the Chronicle of Higher Education. And so there's constant discussion in the Chronicle. So this is something about, that is very And of course Maddie is going to be applying to college. Yes, and exactly. so, and so, so all so of these is, things are on, this, on but my this mind. brings it to the top of your mind regularly. Right. And it was your idea to bring uh Catherine on to talk about this because this is something that you know, you you lobbied hard for, you know, that our listeners would be interested in, in hearing about this. And I, I'm I think, in favor. I, I think, totally want to learn you know, more. Also, with, with all of these states passing laws to outlaw DEI, Florida being yeah. uh, the, the most important one, defund DEI and essentially outlaw it. Right. I think it's really important because there is a very significant part. Uh, first, you know, many, many academics, students and People believe that DI is critical and it, it, important for us to, um, to uh, you know, have these conversations and have DI programs at universities. But before we get into all this, let me set the stage. Okay, Catherine Harold, Professor Catherine Harold from Syracuse University. She's currently on a Fulbright at in Serbia. And, and, and let me just a little aside. I saw Catherine in March. We were both at the International Studies Association meeting in Montreal. And we went to Opia de Cochon, which is an Anthony Bourdain restaurant. Brad, we're both big fans of it. And I will say, uh, let me set the stage. Catherine's what? Five feet, five foot one, four, four feet. Four, four eleven. Four, four nine. Four eleven, four ten. I mean, this is not, you know. Five four. And we went to Opia de Cochon and, and I got it. She's five four. She's five four. As, and yeah. she housed. She just housed these two giant pig's feet. I it can, was amazing. Hold on. It's not just her height, though. Like, I, I'm looking at, at you, and she's a slight... She's, 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 she's diminutive. Yeah. Right. 
Exactly. And she's like, oh, we're having the pig's feet. She doesn't There's look no like somebody who we're could, having the pig's feet. She doesn't look like somebody who could take down we sat, we sat at this restaurant for like four hours eating Damn it. and drinking. It was amazing. It was so funny. I ate most of the uh, most of the the poutine. And she ate most of the pig's feet. And then we shared this like insane pecan pie with uh, what's a maple sugar. It was great. We, we Brad, this is a – I mean, maybe you don't want to have the pig's feet when you go, but this is a restaurant that is worth traveling yes, to. I, I, I believe it. I'm not a swine eater, but, you know, <laughs> I, res- I respect those who enjoy the pig's feet. Anyway, so that uh, – just to give people some color on on this, that uh, – so we, uh, quite the introduction there. It was quite the introduction. So, Captain, welcome to the Amen Corner. Well, thank you, Stephen. I do need to point out that you're exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> Stephen Me? exaggerating? On the Amen Corner? There was only one pig's foot. Yeah. Granted, uh, it, it was, was so big. It, it was a pig's like leg. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was just one. We okay, did well, stay for close to four hours. I, I mean, I am a pig eater, unlike Brad, but... How big um, was I'm it? I'm not that familiar with pig anatomy. It was really big. We're we, talking like... Catherine sent a photo to us over email, which yeah, is, no, I think, but... a photo I took. Um, yeah, it was really anyway. an, an impressive piece of animal in any way. Which is really why Stephen invited you on the, on the podcast. I mean, well, I have another claim to fame on this podcast. Do it. Um, and yeah, that is... That I am one of, and I'm sure just one of, the loyal listeners who um, voiced some concerns when the episode numbers disappeared briefly. Now, that's that's a beef with Daron. I mean, I was going to say, this all came about because producer Daron was like, oh, why do you guys have the numbering system like that? It's like nobody else does that. But... You know, Stephen did say that we got he got some feedback that people missed it, and we brought it back because we, Stephen and I, are people pleasers, and <laughs> our there's nothing more important to us than our audience. So we're happy to bring that back. Yes, we got feedback from Professor Doctor Catherine and a number of others about being able to count uh, our episodes, and then of course, well, I didn't screw it up, but we did screw up. Wow, Jesus. I mean, you make <laughs> one mistake and you never hear the end of it. All right, all right. That's the end. That's the last one. Okay. But I, so. I can guarantee you it's not the last one. No, no, no. One. Seriously, no, I, I swear, swear. I, will not, I will not do it. I don't know. I got an email from Catherine the other day giving me shit about it. I'm like, damn, it's a tough room to work. Anyway. This, is, this is like when, when Lauren says to me when I'm just teasing Mia, she's like, all right, enough, enough. Anyway. Because she's like, and she looks at me, he's just a baby, ignore him. Um, okay. So, I'm glad that your wife has to tell your teenage daughter that her father is just a baby and he needs <laughs> to be ignored. <laughs> that really speaks well. I mean, it, it, it actually happens regularly, <laughs> twice a week, three times a week. Yeah. Yeah, well. Anyway, let's okay. go on into the, the, exactly. the crux okay. of what we're here to talk about. Not pigs, legs, and feet, but. Um, so, so Catherine, is it is is DEI like it, it exists on campus? It's it's something that's become part of the campus landscape. Is it as much of a problem as someone like George Will? I mean, you know, Fox News has made this one of the you know evils, and Ron DeSantis calls it 
you know, is referring in part to DEI when he talks about the woke mind virus. They call it, um, the right wing calls it division, exclusion, and indoctrination. So what's actually, besides, you know, separate the hype from what's actually happening on campus um, and, and from where you sit, what, you know, what are the advantages or, or problems with it? Let me start by telling you and your loyal listeners that when I told a friend and colleague, he's, he's a colleague at a, another school, um, that I had been invited to um, buy the Amen Corner with, you know, your wide listenership and um, uh, to like speak about poking, this issue. I feel like she's How did that go when the bookers that. reached out to you? Like, were they, <laughs> I, I mean, just so I want to know so that when we reach out to other guests, I want to make sure that the bookers and the producers are okay. treating our guests yeah, well. Should, yeah, we well, you all treated me really well. <laughs> but I was told by this friend and colleague, who, by the way, is a tenured professor, as I am, mm-hmm. that I should not do this because it would be career suicide. And that, I think, tells us that, yes, this is an issue. Mm. Um, this is a big issue. And well, that, that is a huge concern, right? Can, and that is I partly a... why I uh, said, yes, I must do this. Because so few people are... So too many people are fearful about of talking about okay, it. And so I let me understand ask you a why about they're that. fearful. Go ahead. So so do me a favor and let me use a, a grad seminar term on that. Can you unpack that for us? You know, what why why did he think it was career suicide for you to come on and talk to us about DEI issues? Probably because um, the moment that anyone has a I'm going to say, I'm going to use the word critical. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean like thoughtful, mm-hmm. not just laudatory, not just lip service conversation about this. Um, it becomes dangerous. Right. So what you're saying is it is, it is a problem on campus. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's mm-hmm. exactly what I'm saying. Um, so, so I think you- it's created a culture of fear, which it shouldn't. I mean, these, so... Let me just step back and say, I think it's created a few problems. One of self-censorship, um, one of censoring others, and one of creating a bit of an echo chamber. And I think that like all together, um, this has created cultures of fear. And it's also made DEI more lip service and political correctness than a serious grappling with the issues, right? Mm. That's a good point. Um, and what what I think we need, I'm I'm in I'm so in favor of a serious grappling with issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We need to have those conversations, right? And we need to have difficult conversations around them. I've heard a lot of people say that they are. It's interesting that they are interest. They they are fully supportive of diversity and inclusion. Like making totally get behind that. And these are people from all walks: lawyers, business people, and so on and so forth. They do have a problem with the with 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 equity and how that how that how they perceive what equity means because they it's not equality. It's it's equity, and it's interesting that you talk about it. It's created this. I imagine also it creates a 
a culture of resentment because you have people who resent the fact that they have to self-censor. Censor. And then the, and then DEI is under attack and supporters of DEI are resentful of that. And it just makes sense to me like it makes for an entirely unhealthy environment where it makes it really, really hard to have the, the kinds of thoughtful conversations that you're, you're suggesting need to be had. Yeah. And for example, a thoughtful conversation about what does equity mean, how, whether and how um, this fits in with the values um, and the policies and the practices that, that we have in our universities. And um, unhealthy, I think, is the right word because um, I fear that, or I feel and fear um, that, you know, again, we're, we're, we're dancing around the really difficult questions and instead we're having workshops and, um, you know, special days and um, proclamations and statements and um, just a set of, of more bureaucratic processes rather than the really, really difficult conversations. And we're creating, I fear, spaces where there's an inclination to, or there's, I, I don't necessarily want to use the word inclination. There's a pressure to create a protected space mm -hmm. rather than a space that challenges all of us, not just the students, but that, that is a challenging space. Um, you know, yes, universities are bubbles from the real world, but we as faculty members and administrators have a duty and by the way, are called upon by our students to prepare students for the real world, right? Increasingly students want their educations to be directly tied to their careers. Right. And I think that we're doing a real disservice to students if we're not really fundamentally grappling with issues around DEI and instead, um, you know, creating, an, and I think you wanted to talk about trigger warnings as well, but creating spaces that are so protected and, and that are so self-censored. This well, I think so, is so not preparing students for the real world. So, so let me ask you, what are the difficult conversations that you would like to see being had? Like if you're, you said we're dancing around it because we're trying not to offend anybody, but like, what are the issues here? Like if you could, you know, for people who are not in academia, what does this look like uh, in terms of the debate on campus? Well, um, so for one, I mean, what does equity mean? Again, what, you know, that, that could be one conversation. And I think, you know, honestly, I think the right person to ask about this is probably a, and every school has one now, a DEI officer, oh, sure. right? right. Yeah. But here's I think the they're the ones, but let me just give you an yeah. example of what I'm seeing, for example. Um, so I have seen students say in a class, um, say, you know what, I, um, and, and, and I, I, I applaud them. They were very brave to say, I, I don't know the rules of, of political correctness. I don't know what will offend others, 
but I want to be respectful. So, and I want to learn. So, you know, if I say something offensive, please tell me and I'll, then I'll learn and I won't say those things anymore. And, you know, and, and this to me, standing in the front of a room, like this is great, right? Here's, here are students who are saying, I don't know all the answers. Please help me learn so that I can better understand and we can discuss what offends and why and, you know, how we can address this. But the response to that is, no, no, that's, that, that puts too much pressure on aggrieved people and we need to check our biases before we speak. So we can't, we can't expect each other to, you know, we can't expect other classmates to call us out. We just have to always be careful before we speak. And yeah, I mean, I, I think we should all strive to say or to not say things that, that others are going to find offensive. But at the same time, this to me then shuts down any conversation and again, creates that culture of fear and creates that self-censorship. So what you're saying is it's basically impossible to have those conversations because there's an expectation among DEI officers or DEI advocates that people say certain things. Otherwise they are beyond the pale and people have that, have internalized that. They say, I might say something that's going to make me beyond the pale and I don't want to confront that. And I don't want to, I don't, and the costs of it are actually high. Because even though there might be people who agree with me privately, publicly, they're going to have to side with those folks. So, so in a, in a sense, you're saying that part of the problem with DEI is that it has created this culture where you actually can't. It doesn't. You you're almost forced to have these performative things like proclamations and days without actually having the the conversations about what equity actually means. Because you get twelve people in a room and everybody says, "Well, equity means X," and that's the right answer. I've, and this is anecdotal, or this is hearsay, I guess I should say. Um, but I have heard from other faculty um, that students, conservative students, have confided in them that, um, for example, if they have, you know, a, a special class on, you know, that's DEI focused or whatever, they know exactly what to say or mm. what to write in, for example, an essay. And even if they don't agree with it, they write it and they get the A. And, um, Again, this to me is closing opportunities for when 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 this sort of self censorship is happening. This is this is closing what could be a real opportunity to have a conversation. Yeah, that's my concern. So that there seems to be some pushback. Um, Cornell University recently rolled out a policy that says that professors don't have to have trigger warnings and syllabi. University of Chicago has a, a famous free speech policy. Um, Stanford University Law School's dean uh, wrote a very long letter to her students and faculty about the value of free speech and the importance of, of upholding free speech. Do you think that this is going to become more widespread? That, that Cornell, people holding up Chicago, the Stanford letter, these are things that are going to sort of break the dam and there's going to be more honest conversations about these kinds of things? Well, I learned, Stephen Cook, from a very wise mentor not to make predictions about things. Okay. Fair, um, fair point. But, but let, me, let me reflect on what I've observed so far. And my observation is that faculty are frustrated. I, not all. Okay. I don't want to... Obviously, I'm not speaking for everyone here. Um, but... My observation is that many faculty are are fearful and frustrated. Um, administrators 
um, are um, administrators have a job to CYA, cover your ass, right? Mm. Um, that's not to say that they don't care about these issues, but they're also bound by lawyers. <laughs> um, and, 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 and I think there's a trend of students to be ever more demanding and critical of faculty when faculty um, slip or mess up in their view, right? Um, you know, I think ultimately, I, I do think that faculty, administrators, students, all, not all, but, you know, most do really care deeply about values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and related values, um, but ha have very, very different ways of, have very different interests, meaning like, you know, administrators need to avoid lawsuits, faculty need to earn tenure, um, students are very concerned, wonderfully, you know, about social justice, anti-racism, um, but, but, you know, there's, there's been, there's been such, there's been this rapid, rapid and very forceful response by administrators pushed down through faculty um, in response to students and response to just social pressures. And now, yeah, we are seeing um, what someone has referred to as the Stanford effect, um, which is to say, okay, it's gone a little too far and we need we need to step back and grapple. So whether that will happen, I don't know, but it seems to be trending that way now. Let, let me ask you a question. Uh, and Stephen earlier mentioned some of the backlash with, you know, in places like Florida with people like Ron DeSantis. And, you know, to me, it feels like, and I'm sure, you know, all of us here are familiar with some of the uh, attempts to ban books around the country. And it, these feel like two sides of the same coin in, in a lot of ways to me, because essentially if one person feels uncomfortable or feels somehow insulted or demeaned, then that can shut down the entire debate. Just like exactly. if in Florida, one parent can decide that this book is offensive to me and my family, and then they will remove those books from the library shelves. So how much of this is really the, almost a tyranny of the minority? Well, right, that was that was my next question, which was, you know, where's it coming from? Where who who exactly are administrators and faculty afraid of? Um, probably lawyers and students, <laughs> um, um, and parents. Um, you know, I think I. I think it's coming from everywhere, right? I think again, parents. I think that's we interesting. All, just, just as an aside, are parents kind of vocal on college campuses? I don't know. I, uh, my, I don't know. I don't teach undergrads. I teach right. master's students, and so I don't get so much of that. Um, but um, I have, I, even with master's students, I have had parents call me in the past, not around this particular issue, but around issues that their students have that I'm not allowed to talk with the parents about. Uh -huh. Um, but, but I've had, I've had parents call me or wow. reach out. Yeah. Wow. Um, 
But, you know, I do think it's coming from everywhere, right? Because we all want to grapple with it. We mm -hmm. all care about it. So it's not like, oh, you know, administrators are only putting these policies in place because they feel that they have to. I mean, I think they really do care about, um, about social justice. Um, but, but I, I do worry that, you know, faculty are, as I said, we have different interests. Faculty are concerned about tenure and about promotion and you get too many complaints from students. Well, that can jeopardize. And today it can even jeopardize your career if you do have tenure, right? Mm. If you're getting too many complaints about being racist or, right. you know, offending. Um, so faculty are scared for that reason um, and feeling pressure from students. And we're feeling pressure from administrators, by the way, who are telling us that, well, we need to have the students lay ground rules on the first day of class. Like since when did students become responsible right. for and deciding course, the classroom state, engagement? State State, state universities policies? and colleges, you have legislators. Like, precisely, precisely. So but, I think there are a lot of different pressures from a lot of different directions that people are trying to navigate. And, you know, in navigating them, we make, mis quote unquote, mistakes. And, and who decides what a mistake is? You know, I'm too academic-y in this way. I, don't, <laughs> I always ask who defines what. But um, but I think that, you know, we're, we're just trying to, we're muddling through this in ways that are not allowing us to have the really hard and difficult and serious conversations that will get us to where I think everybody probably wants to be. But, but if we're all afraid of the students who are going to complain or the states that are going to defund the public universities, and if students are, are viewed as customers and not as students, uh, and at the end of the day, you're providing a service. And if you are not good at providing the service, like you said, then you could potentially lose your job. Then we're not really, I don't see a way through this other than just reframing how we are, uh, how we view the whole uh, pursuit of advanced education. Yeah, I, it, it's, I agree. <laughs> It, so, I, it, it strikes me that there is no, there's no real good answer here um, to how to, how, how to actually have these conversations if people are going to be quick with one accusation or another. Yeah. I mean, you know, you read these George Will columns and they, you know, they paint the, the, the corrupt, horrible professoriate for, for these problems. And I don't, I mean, what I know, what I see, I don't think that that's, necessarily the case. I mean, of course, there's, there's always going to be your, you know, radical activist faculty, but by and large, I don't think that, that that's really what's, what's happening here. It seems like a, an extraordinary dynamic of what Catherine is talking about between, you know, lawyers, student demands, faculty who have certainly have views and, and, and now a DEI bureaucracy that, you know, fights for its resources and then needs to justify those those resources, and it becomes this toxic. And then you add into social media, Fox News, and everything else, and it becomes this really toxic environment well, where you well, can't talk about it. What's interesting to me is that you guys, as academics, um, you see this from a very specific point of view, and from what I'm hearing, it's the academics who are the ones who are stuck in the middle and frightened. I mean, yeah. your colleague telling you not to even participate in this conversation. And 
is is very telling. And yeah. I have another I have another friend who uh, teaches at another school, a state funded school, who said quite honestly that they are afraid. Mm-hmm. They're afraid about what they can and cannot say, and 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 that their livelihoods are in, 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 in hanging the balance as a result. And I want to say to pick up on Brad's point, like or points that you both made. Um, you know, here I am laying out what I perceive to be the challenges and the dangers, but I don't have answers of how we fix this. Right. I don't, and and there's no easy answer. I, you know, I um, I think everyone's in a really difficult place right now, which is a pity because if we could, and and I do think it's also, you know, in a way it's reflective of our greater society where I don't know if there's a polarization really um, because I mean, I think that there probably is polarization around issues of DEI, except that only one voice is heard, right? Only one perspective is Mm. heard. So, so, you know, the, the, polarization almost doesn't exist because one voice has just been totally silent. So that charge that people are leveling against colleges and universities where it's become sort of monochrome in terms of views is, is accurate. Not in terms of views, but in, in terms of stated public expression, right. Public expression. Yes. Yeah. That, um, shoot. So where was I going with this? So, yeah. So anyway, but how do, how do we start to have, the conversations across differences where we can speak freely and not fear that something we're going to say is going to be the wrong thing. And let me tell you, like you can probably hear me pausing and speaking rather slowly because I am choosing my words very carefully and because I'm still grappling with this. Right. And I want to stress that like I, I, do not have answers to this. I am still trying to figure it all out in my own head. And the reason I came on this podcast is because I think we need to have more conversations where we realize that, okay, would a, we don't know the answers. We that Which is great. But would a good starting point be the widespread adoption of the University of Chicago's free speech policies? I mean, or, or for universities to embark on writing their own free speech policies. And, is- and yeah, and, and I mean, I, I would certainly be in favor of that. Um, mm. The question is, is that how mangled will it get given right. these kind of competing interests and, and views that you can start out saying we're going to write a free speech policy and that it actually have the opposite effect or, or just mm. replicate some of the problems that, that we're, we're talking about. And it, this is a, uh, I suspect this is this is a problem that is, I think, manifest in the university settings because of the particularities of the university. But I think lots of people, lots and and lots of different places, are really struggling with these with these issues as well. Oh yeah, I was just talking with um, a U.S. government staffer yesterday here in Belgrade, and um, I mentioned that I was going to uh, come on this podcast. Um, even though, yes, I was a little fearful. I'm, I'm, I, as I told Brad, I think this is the coolest thing ever that I'm a guest on the MN Corner. Anyway, I was bragging about this to this government official. He's like, oh, he said, send it to me. He said, 
we're dealing with the same thing here. He, right. They have something called, I can't remember, rewarded vulnerability or responsible vulnerability. I don't, I don't know. And I don't want to, I, because I don't know, I don't want to get into it, but, um, but yeah, the, the, it's everywhere. You know, I, I, I got out of the elevator at work the other day and there were a number of the young women research associates standing there talking to that. I said, Hey guys, good morning. I was like, can I, and, and it's just the way I talk. I like every Hey guys. And, and, and as I'm walking down the hallway to my office, I'm running through my head. Like, could I get in trouble for that? You shouldn't call them guys. I know. And, yeah. and, and, and it's just like, you know, I, it, people are just, yes. that's and everybody that, to I, me. And unfortunately for you and me, that's an age thing, right? We grew up in a time period where like there was absolutely nothing wrong with saying that. And now, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. no, no. Well, and now it, it feels like, look, I'm never going to be the one who says like, oh, woe is me. I'm a middle-aged white man. Like, come on. Oh, I am. What, 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 I know you are. But that, <laughs> no, but like, because like my but back hurts. Okay, but my knees never, I don't feel like we're the aggrieved party in, in many uh, situations. Oh, I feel put upon. You are definitely put upon. However... <laughs> It, it does make you feel slightly irrelevant when you have this uh, worldview that was developed 40 some odd years ago, that things that were okay then are not, are no longer okay. And the only way, and I was talking about this with someone yesterday, like, what can we do about that? Either we can throw up our hands and say, like, I don't know, this is just what it was like when I was younger, and then we become irrelevant and we're Archie Bunker, basically. Or we can endeavor to try to figure this out. And and it doesn't only go for this, you know, even things like gender identity. It's like things that our kids understand intuitively, you and I, Stephen, do not. And we have to learn it and we have to be taught it, but we have to be willing to have an open mind about it. So I have been trying, that, that whole guys thing, I've been trying to train myself to say, hey, people, hey, people. What if y'all, that's a good one. I, I suggest y'all. y'all, yeah. Hey, how people. About, how about and just, then the other hey, thing is, hey. And then, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, can hey. I just, <laughs> can I just add to this, though? And, and you know, the, the generational issue, That's an, that I see it more and more um, as an issue with between faculty and students, right? Yeah. Faculty say things that were perfectly fine when yes. we were coming of age, and my and and we are very open, as you know, you both are, to being quote unquote corrected, right? And and learning what is and is not appropriate today. But and that's exactly my point. We can't learn if a students are afraid to tell us, or if students anonymously tell us in a course evaluation that we were racist or that we were sexist or that we were whatever. We need to be told to our face in a respectful manner. And I, I mean, some faculty might not take that well, but I think most would. It's Um, certainly better than in a course evaluation. Well, I think it's really interesting that you talk about this anonymity thing. And I wonder how much of it is related to the fact that given the rise of social media and the internet in the last generation and 
especially in the aftermath of the pandemic when everything went virtual. How how much do you think it is because uh, that people just don't know how to interact with other people anymore and, and like a person on a person to person level. So they'll see for an entire semester and wait until your evaluation to say something rather than come up to you during the course of the semester and say, this makes me uncomfortable. Can we talk about it? I mean, I wonder how much of, it, of this really is predicated on the fact that people don't know how to talk to each other as well anymore. Or does that just make me sound old for saying it? No, I don't know. I mean, I've been a faculty member for about 10 years now. Um, and, you know, social media has been pretty prominent during that whole time. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I do think that there's there there has long been a culture of, you know, students not um, going directly to a professor to express concern with the faculty member themselves or or even with the class necessarily. And then it comes out in a in a course evaluation. I've right. seen I've witnessed that from day one. Um, so I don't know. How much of that do you think could be mitigated by you standing in the front of the classroom in the beginning of the semester and saying, if you have issues, I would like to hear about them when they arise rather than at the end of the semester? Well, I do do that and I do get some feedback. I tend to, you know, I think I tend to to um, develop relatively relationships with my students where they do feel that they know that they can come to me and that I will welcome um, feedback. Um, but even so I still get surprises in the course evaluations. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think the course evaluations actually are particularly brutal for women. Why do you say Research that? suggests that. Yeah. Is and that minorities. True? I mean, I've gotten some choice. Well, I, you know, those times that I've, that taught, I've gotten some choice comments as well, but I think it's, I think it's rougher for, for women and minorities, to be honest with you. In any event, uh, this has been, I think, an extraordinary conversation. Um, we've just, I think, I mean, it's a cliche, like we really have just scratched the surface. Yeah, yeah of this. I feel like this you is could go on and on and on. Like, I, I for, still don't even know. Forever. But Catherine has a crazy Friday night set up for in Belgrade. And um, actually, I have got... to go to bed early because I'm swimming in the. Um, Serbian National Masters Swimming Championships. Right, wow. it's gonna, I saw. I checked the. I checked the TV listing. It's going to be on ESPN <laughs> eight. The Ocho. <laughs> Wait, can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, swimming competition that you're participating in? Well, sure. It's the national championships for Serbian master swimming. Now, master swimming is a global phenomenon. Uh, it's adult swimming, and um, you know, it's about fitness and fun and friendships and um we have a great well, time but, but she's I, I i think Catherine's making light of this i mean this takes this extremely no, no, obviously this is a real thing the, right? the morning after mowing this giant yeah pig's foot she was we were on a panel the next day together she was in the pool i was like I, I walked in i saw her i was like oh my god my stomach uh i was up burping all night she's like oh i swam laps i was what? like what What's you got up your... early and swam laps I can barely move. I what almost you... sank to the bottom of the pool after that <laughs> pig's foot. What and the pecan pie. What are you swimming? Like what? Uh... Uh, I, everything except the 50 meters. So there's 100 meters, 200 meters, 
and 400 meters of freestyle and 100 and 200 of every other stroke and the medley. So I'm doing all of that. Wow. Really? Wow. I'm not fast. I just have fun. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. But it's it's fun. It's it's a big deal to me because I get to spend time not doing it. Right. Exactly. It's better than lying in bed after I do it. It's better than not doing it. This that's great. And you do this when you're up at school too, when you're not on off in the the rest of the world. The barn center where the swimming pool is is uh, steps from my office every day. Wow, that's awesome. That's inspirational. That maybe I'll get off your ass, Stephen. I'm going to go have some Oreos after this. I'm getting kind of hungry. Today was actually an off day for me. Anyway. All right. Okay. Captain, thank you so much for taking the time. It's wonderful to see yeah, you and, and hear your views on this. Um, it's been, I think this has been a, a, a highlight episode of, of season seven. If not, well, thank the you entire, so much for having me. And, um, you know, as I said, I'm still grappling with these issues myself. I don't have any answers, but, um, you know, maybe this gives listeners an insight into, um, you know, what some of the challenges are around these issues or what I perceive to be some of the challenges around these issues on campus. When are you back on campus? Uh, September. So maybe in the fall, once you've had a chance to get your sea legs under you, we can have you back so you can report as to what you've seen uh, since your return. Yeah, but you forget, Brad, I will have been fired by then because this is career suicide. <laughs> Fair point. Well, then you could just become Fair a permanent point. part of the oh, yeah, of staff. Or you could just take over uh, Stephen's role on the Unmanned <laughs> Corner. Stephen will be... I will see, you know, no, adapt or die. And I think the podcast needs to, you know... No, I think Stephen uh, is going to be called upon to take over at CNN. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going to need a new partner for the MA Corner, so... Uh, I won't be putting my office on the 22nd floor. That's a good uh, idea. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you better sit with the rest of the staff. Steve. Exactly. Okay. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks, everybody. See ya. Thank you. See ya.